So as I said, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6 together. For many of you, probably one of the first things that you've noticed when you were visiting North Point was just how many kids we have. We just saw that a couple minutes ago, right? In fact, I know that's the case because I can't count the number of times that someone has remarked to me that more than half of the church leaves when the kids are released for kids' church. And it's true. In, in case you hadn't noticed, the rate of new additions through births and adoptions is keeping a steady pace. As Mark mentioned, we have a number of families who are adopting and a number of pregnancies in the church. And so uh, we consider this, of course, a absolutely tremendous blessing from the Lord, but it's also an incredible responsibility. We've been spending the past few weeks going through chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where Paul has a lot to say about how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our relationships, and in particular, our most intimate relationships between husbands and wives and between mothers and fathers and their children. Mark prayed about that just a moment ago. And this week, we're going to continue to look at what God has to say about how we relate to our children. More specifically, we're going to consider the command that our Lord gives to the Christian community to shepherd the hearts of our children in the Lord Jesus. Lee mentioned last week that this is something that we talk about all the time in our shepherd groups and in discipleship. It's one of the most common topics that comes up. It's very practical. And I think it's because we have wonderful parents and grandparents here in our church and Sunday school teachers, and all of you deeply care about our kids, about loving them and shepherding them toward loving Jesus. So jumping back to Ephesians for just a moment, you'll recall that in the first few chapters of the book, Paul expounds the glories of the gospel of grace that comes to us in Jesus Christ. He takes us clear back to God's sovereign planning of our salvation before the foundation of the world. He explains that we're God's children now, And that though we've been separated from him through our rebellion and through our sin and we were under his wrath, he's now brought us back into his family and he calls us his children. Paul says that all of this has come to us in Jesus Christ, who died for us and whose love for us is so deep that it passes understanding. He says it's high and deep and long and wide, the love of Christ. And we call this the gospel. And now, in the latter part of the book, as, we were talk- as I was mentioned before in the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6, we've been seeing that God wants that glorious gospel to soak in and saturate our homes and our relationships. We're supposed to be like sponges that are so saturated with the gospel that when we're wrung out in our normal relationships of life, gospel grace will pour out of us and on to others who are around us, especially those who are closest to us. So God calls us to have marriages that are dripping with the gospel, where husbands give themselves for their wives, just like Christ gave himself for the church. Paul calls children to obey their parents because they've been soaked in the gospel. And he wants parents to relate to their children through gospel-saturated grace, which creates a climate an atmosphere in the home that points to Jesus. And Paul bases all of this on God's character and his covenant to us in Christ as the foundation for the imperatives that he calls us to respond in. But this isn't merely a response of thanksgiving for what God has done, though that is what it is in part. But this is who the Ephesians are, and it's who we are. 
To live with one another in love and grace is at the center of who we are in the Lord. It's part of our identity. This is what it looks like to be God's covenant people. He says to us, you're mine. I have made it so. It's who you are. So the call to walk in love or to be imitators of God, for instance, that, are, that Paul gives at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, those can never be divorced from what God has done for us in Christ and what God is doing in us to sanctify us more and more each day to reflect the likeness of Jesus. So Paul connects God's grace, God's covenant promises to God's commands and our response. The two things must go together. But Paul wasn't the first to make this connection or to communicate God's commands in this way. This idea of God's covenant relationship to his people as the basis for love and devotion to him and to others, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes back to God himself. Because this is how he's always dealt with his people. In fact, Moses takes this exact same perspective and approach in our passage today in Deuteronomy. He connects God's grace to God's commands through his covenant love for us. Deuteronomy is one of those books that, quite frankly, you probably don't get all that excited about when you come to it in your yearly Bible reading or your study time. However, when you read the beginning of Deuteronomy, you'll notice that most of the book is really a sermon or a series of sermons that Moses preached to the people, Israel, right before they entered the promised land. You'll remember that God had used Moses to redeem his people out of slavery in Egypt. He'd brought them out with signs and wonders. In several spots in Deuteronomy, Moses says that God has brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm in power and glory. And then God had given them the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And this was part of the covenant to guard them and to teach them to live as God's chosen covenant people. And even after years of wandering the wilderness because of their disobedience and they did not trusting the Lord to be faithful to him, even still, God kept his covenant promises and he brought them safely to the promised land. And now in Deuteronomy, Israel's on the plains of Moab. They're about to finally enter the promised land. Moses, however, is not going to enter it, and he knows that because God has told him so. He knows that he's near the end of his life, and he preaches a sermon to God's covenant people on this occasion. He tells the people of God's mighty works of grace on their behalf, even despite their failures. And the first four chapters record over and over again how God had been faithful to his covenant promise, how God had kept them, and how his love had been steadfast again and again and again. Then in chapter 5, Moses again reads the Ten Commandments over the people. So he, God had given them in Exodus 20 on Mount Sinai, and now before entering the Promised Land, Moses reads the Ten Commandments over them as a blessing to the whole nation. Even here in Deuteronomy, the law is soaked in God's grace. The laws are founded on God's covenant and on God's character. You are mine. I've made it so. It's who you are. He says, I've set my affection upon you. 
I have redeemed you out of bondage. We know this is true of us as well. That if you've trusted Christ this morning, that picture of being redeemed out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt points us to the fact that we have been redeemed in Jesus Christ out of the bondage of sin. And as we come here Sunday by Sunday, it's a reminder of that, that God has redeemed us. We are his people and we belong to him. So he says to us, you're mine. I've made it so. It's who you are. Our passage today in chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, and that's where we're going to focus particularly, picks up following the reading of the Ten Commandments. And as Lee had said last week, it ties in directly to what we've been talking about in Ephesians, namely bringing up the children who are in our midst within God's covenant community to know and love the Lord their God. As I said, Moses is addressing the entire nation, the, the entire covenant community, giving a sermon to thousands to commemorate their entrance into the promised land. This was a momentous occasion to mark God's faithfulness and his steadfast love. And here, as we'll see, Moses gives the people the great command, the center of all that they must know and do. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what does he do next? What does he consider so important and so central to all that he's saying and doing? He says, you must teach these things to your children. Not just moms and dads, but all of God's covenant community. All of the people of God are to pass these things down to the next generation. In particular, he says, teach the children among you to know the Lord. So let's read together from verses 1 through 7 of Deuteronomy 6. If you don't mind, I'm going to have you stand with me as we read the word together. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Again, we're going to focus on verses 4 through 7. But I want to read the introduction as well. <clears throat> now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Thank you. You can be seated. So we're going to look at four things together in this passage today. Four components of what we see here. The content of the commandment, which we're going to see in verses 4 and 5. The captivating power of the message the call to diligent instruction, and our course of action. 
If you don't like alliteration, by the way, that just helps me remember my points, so bear with me. <laughs> it's not to, I'm not trying to be cute in any way. So first, the content of the commandment. This is why I needed the computer, by the way. In verses 4 and 5, Moses tells us what it is that we are to pass on to the next generations. Some of you probably heard this passage referred to as the Shema. The Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear, the first word of this passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Moses, in a sense, is saying, listen up. This is key. Don't miss this. One of the commentators, or some of the commentators on this passage have said that really the entire book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on this one passage. That everything else, in a sense, comes from that and grows out of this passage. That hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you're to love the Lord your God with your heart and soul and might. You'll recall that Jesus quoted these words in the passage that Marty read for us this morning as our scripture reading. Jesus calls this the most important commandment. None is greater, he says. Also, in Matthew chapter 22, he similarly says that all of the law and the prophets depend upon these words. But what is so significant about them? What do they communicate to us? They communicate that we belong entirely to the Lord and are called to a life of devoted love to him with all that we have and all that we are. One of the things that you notice about Jesus as you read the Gospels is that he has an uncanny way of getting to the heart of things. He's never satisfied with external righteousness or with holy-sounding language that so many people use. These things don't impress him. He's not impressed by people who, have, who know tons and tons about the Scriptures but who are conversely empty of any real love for God. Yet he's also regularly calling people to radical commitment and complete abandon. He's not looking for half-hearted followers or people who have wonderful religious records. Jesus wants hearts that belong completely to God. And that's what we see here in the Shema in verses 4 and 5 that all of our being belongs to the Lord. And as we follow Jesus, we're called to complete, com complete commitment. At the same time, Jesus is serious about doctrine. He's serious about God's Word. He believes in the power of the Bible. You remember he uses it in the wilderness to resist Satan and his temptations. He uses it time and again to confound the Pharisees as they try to trip him up and trick him because he knows it so well. He exposes the shallow and flim flimsy understanding of the Bible for what it is. And over and over and over again, Jesus points to himself as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus wants souls and minds that are filled with the depths of God's word. Heart, soul, might. These words signify every fiber of our being. They point to the fact that all of life is lived before the living God. He cares not only about our Sundays, 
but also about our work and our leisure, our homes, our marriages, our parenting. This calls us to a fundamental way of thinking, a Godward orientation. We're called in all of our thinking and acting to be oriented to the living God. This means that we are, what we are passing on to these children as we instruct them is not just Bible knowledge or God's rules or how God wants them to behave. We're called to teach them to be God-oriented in all of their thinking, talking, and acting. To consider what God says to them, who He is in their lives, and what He has done for them. We are to instruct not just their minds, but their hearts, always seeking, like Jesus, to expose their affections and their motivations so that they can begin to see what drives their thinking and acting and speaking. And we must give them the gospel. We must tell them of God's love for them, of his forgiveness and grace. We have to be willing to show them again and again and again, as many of you who are parents and grandparents know. There is plenty of opportunity within the home for the opportunity to call to repentance and give forgiveness and grace. I know we do it in our house daily. And we can't be afraid of deep truth and solid doctrine either. As I said before, in Ephesians, Paul wants the riches of the gospel to soak in to us for for us to realize that God says, this is who you are, so that it might pour out into our relationships. And we can't be afraid to dive in to the deep things of, of God. I grew up in church and in Christian school and around many friends who grew up the same way. We were taught the Bible stories. We were told that God loved us and that Jesus died for our sins. And many of my friends were in church and Sunday school and Christian school for their entire childhood. Yet, so many times I've seen friends who get to their teens and 20s, especially those college years, and turn away. And there's many factors that go into this, and I don't want to try to oversimplify it. There can be many reasons that this happens. But I think one of the problems that can often show up in the lives of young men and women as they reach these years is that they've never been taught solid doctrine and deep truth from God's Word. No one's ever helped them to see the way that the grace of Christ changes our hearts and our minds, to give them a way of thinking about the scriptures and understanding what Jesus is really calling us to. They're often like full-grown adults who are playing in the kiddie pool. Parents and churches and others in their lives have given them the lighter version, either for fear of scaring them away, or because it just seemed too hard, or because they themselves weren't really all that interested in knowing the Lord. But you see, the whole point of knowing God's word is to know God. He loves us, has made himself known, and calls us to live in fellowship with him. This means diving into the deep end of the pool. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't mean that the simple gospel doesn't save, because it absolutely does. And we must have that, and we really need nothing less. But God calls us to a constant growing and entering into deeper and deeper fellowship with him. And for those of us who've been Christians for years and years, we ought to be diving in deeper. We ought to be 
seeking to know the Lord better because that's how we know him. We know him through his word. And so the more that we seek to understand and know God for who he is, the deeper we go with him. And I think the more solid that we set our roots, we become like trees planted by streams of water. And by the way, I want to say that I'm so thankful for our kids' church program here at North Point. I know we're not perfect. I'm sure we're not. But I know that our teachers, they're giving our kids the gospel. They're not just back there watching the kids or telling stories. They are devoted to making disciples of our children. And I'm very thankful for that. That's who we are. That's what we're here to do. So let's teach our kids about the Trinity, about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's tell them of justification, of adoption, sanctification, and union with Christ. Let's continually point them to how Jesus and his gospel shine through the Old Testament and the New Testament as the story that God is always telling his people. We may have to do this in, simple, in more simple words. It will challenge our ability to communicate clearly and succinctly, but it's worth it. And if you're like me and you need help with this, I'm going to give some suggestions and some practical tools to aid us as we minister to the children who are within our sphere of influence here at the end of our time together. The second thing that we're going to talk about is the captivating power of the message. Excuse me. In verse 6, Moses points out that these words, these words about being devoted to God, that they must be on our hearts, those who are called to teach and pass these things on. We must be captivated by who God is and what he has done. This is an invitation into communion and fellowship with God. Have you ever had a great teacher or coach that really inspired you to absolutely fall in love with a certain sport or maybe a subject in school? This person was absolutely devoted to baseball, maybe literature or music, whatever it was. And their passion and their purpose and their desire was contagious. They got you hooked. You know the old cliche, you've probably said it and heard it a thousand times, more is caught than is taught. We find this to be true in parenting, don't we? And this is so true and important as we teach our children about the Lord. More is caught than is taught. What we will pass on to our kids more than anything else, is who we are. That's why both in Ephesians and here in Deuteronomy, the commands are grounded in God's covenant grace. Because God is saying, this is who you are. This is your identity. You're mine. I've made it so. It's who you are. We're called to be who God says we really are, to be his, to be captivated in love for him, and to live like children of the Father to live like his children. We look to pass on the family likeness. You know what this is like. A lot of times around here you see little kids running around and you know exactly who their parents are. They've passed on the family likeness to their little ones. What we're looking to pass on is likeness to Jesus Christ. We talk about that a lot, especially in discipleship. Christ-likeness. We want to reflect Christ to those around us. We want to be full of grace so that Jesus might shine forth. And when we live and act in ways that exude grace or the fruits of the Spirit over time, 
it spreads. It spreads to our family members. It spreads to our children. Over lots of time, I want to say, or little by little, day by day in small increments. But who you are is the most important thing that will impact your children. Are we kind to our spouse? Are we patient when the kids are obstinate? Are we faithful and good and self-controlled? These things are hard. Or do we insist on our own way? Do we keep a record of wrong? All those things are from 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul tells us what love looks like and what it doesn't look like. And this is what we're called to be. The question really is how can we give our kids the gospel and build a climate of grace in our homes if we don't have a climate of grace in our own hearts? So how do we cultivate a heart that's captivated by God? How do we continue to do that? You're here this morning, so I know that you do that already. But I want to know how to do it better. And I think you guys know the answer. If we want to be contagious in our, in our faith and help draw our children to Christ, we look to his word. We seek to know him better ourselves. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word day and night. That he's like a tree planted by streams of water. That his leaf does not wither. And in, he bears fruit in due season. In fact, Psalm says that everything he does prospers because the Lord watches over his way. And so, day by day, we seek the Lord. We turn to him. We fellowship with him. We worship him and love him with all that we are. And this is how we continue to seek him ourselves and we'll pass it on to our kids. The second thing I want to talk about is a call to diligent instruction. I'm sorry, the third thing is a call to diligent instruction. And this is what we see in verse 7. These verses are so practical. I think um, the, the church throughout, the his, the, throughout history has taken away a number of things from this passage on what it looks like to instruct our children in the faith. Because the response of the heart that is captivated by God in love and devotion is the desire to share this great joy and hope with our children. We talk about this with evangelism a lot around here, that when we're thrilled with the gospel, when we were rejoicing in the grace that's been given to us, that is when we are going to be most likely and empowered to share with others. And the same is true in parenting. With, when we want to share with our kids, we've got to be captured by it. And as we are, we will, we will overflow as I said in the beginning, God's given us an incredible blessing and responsibility of shepherding the hearts of our children in the Lord Jesus. But don't you find the phrasing that Moses uses here so interesting? He says, you are to diligently instruct your children as you walk along the way, as you sit in your house, as you lie down, and as you rise. And I think there are some very practical things that we can take away from this verse. And that, as I said earlier, Christians throughout the centuries have taken from this passage. I'm sure some of them jump off the page at you. But perhaps much more importantly, I think there's an overarching principle here. But first, let's take them practically. And I'm going to take them a bit out of order. So let's start with walk by the way. Lee talked about this last week, so I'm just going to steal his example. Lee said that some of the most important conversations he's had with his four sons recently 
has been when they've been driving in the car. That instead of just listening to the radio or putting on headphones or a cartoon for the kids, which I'm more than guilty of many times, so I'm not, this isn't some kind of guilt trip. But instead of doing something like that, he talks with them. And he asks questions about life, what they're dealing with in their hearts. These things can be awkward at times or difficult, especially with younger kids. How do you get to a deeper level? It is, it is challenging. But nonetheless, shepherding is never a monologue. It can't be. It's a conversation. It's communication, which involves talking and asking questions. And I think perhaps the most important thing that you can possibly do as parents and grandparents and those who are involved in the lives of young people is to take the time to ask caring and thoughtful questions. In fact, I would say do this in any relationship that you care about, and you'll be amazed at how much that helps to draw out the hearts of other people. The second thing that he says is when you sit in your house, and this, of course, must mean that we've got to be at home sometimes. I think in our culture, it's, we're so busy, right? Our schedules are so full that one of the hardest things is just being at home on a consistent basis. But this implies sitting together and talking with one another. This implies sharing our hearts with each other. And we can't always have the TV on, of course, and we've got to try and have dinner together regularly. I would suggest, as a practical tip, maybe a, a regularly weekly scheduled family night that you can't, that no one's allowed to schedule out of. We've tried to do that a little bit in our family while the kids are still young because it's so much harder as they get older into teenage years and beyond to add it in later when the schedules are already packed. That may not be the thing for you, but it's just one suggestion. I, I think it's important to make sure that however we do it, that we find time to connect with one another as a family unit. The point is this. How can we teach our kids about God and shepherd their hearts if we're never together? I would also say this, that from my experience, as we talk about sitting down in your home, especially with younger children, the, most, the best time for formative instruction where you're actually trying to teach something, whether it's doctrine or, or talk to them about the Bible, is when you're sitting together at a meal, whether it's breakfast or dinner. Why? Well, because they're, for once they're contained, right? And, and you've got them in one spot, at least somewhat. And you have their attention, again, at least to some degree, um, I, I have young kids, so I understand that that can be part of the challenge. But if you want to read the Bible as a family together, and you find it very difficult to corral the kids, I would say try dinner time, even while they're eating. It's not easy, but it is worth it. The third thing that Moses talks about is when you lie down. I know that many of you do Bible stories and prayers at bedtimes. And I think that's something that we take away practically from this verse. As we put the kids to bed, what a blessing to end the day by talking to God and entrusting ourselves to his gracious care. An opportunity to maybe repent of our sins of the day and receive his loving mercy together as a family. The fourth thing is when you rise. And again, I know many of you probably use the morning as a time for reading or prayer. I know in our home, the breakfast table is a place where we, on Saturday mornings, is a, an opportunity for us to talk about things, to talk about the Lord together. I wouldn't suggest making this any kind of hard and fast rule or forcing this on our kids, but this is, again, we said it already, more is caught than is taught. If mom and dad are regularly using the mornings to talk to God and to hear from him, it wouldn't be surprising if the kids pick up the habit and if we pass that on to the next generation.
I hope that those practical applications are helpful. But like I said, more than any of that, I think Moses is laying down a general principle. At home, when you're at home, when you're away from home, at the end of your day, at the beginning of your day, what's he saying? These are the rhythms of life. This is all of life. Teaching our children to be oriented to God, to know Him and to love Him, it's not a program. There's not certain things that I can tell you, you've got to do it this way. It's a lifestyle. And we know that we're not always going to do it well. I know I don't. And we know that we're completely dependent upon God's sovereign grace. Only God can save our kids. But our goal is to be conduits of grace. You've heard Lee use that phrase before. We want to find ways to weave these conversations into our very lives. Because the reality is, something will shape them. Either for good or for bad. They will be molded. This reminds me of Romans 12. Where Paul says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world wants to squeeze us into its mold. It wants to conform us, to, make, to, to shape our children and to mold them after its likeness. But as we saw earlier, we're seeking to pass down a different likeness, the family likeness, reflecting Christ. And that is what it looks like to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to become more and more like Jesus, to be like Jesus was, Godward in his orientation, completely devoted to God. And the world is always talking to our kids. It's trying to sell them a message. It's promising them pleasure and happiness. And we've got to help them deconstruct the lies of the world. And we can't do that if we aren't asking questions and seeking to know their hearts. What are they facing? What's tugging at their minds and their hearts? Even at a young age, you'll find that they're thinking, they're noticing, they're observing. Find out what's going on. Help them. We're not going to change this in one conversation. We're not going to change them in one conversation. Or even ten. But God is going to change them through hundreds, if not thousands of, of conversations. And we have to talk back to the to them, not to them, but to the world. We have to talk in in its place to communicate with them, which means we've got to take an interest in their lives, building a trusting and loving relationship. So talk, ask. Before I leave this point, I want to say something to the moms and dads who have children who are either too young to listen and understand or who for various reasons might be unable to communicate in these ways. It can feel pointless and mostly devoid of any real relationship when you're chasing a toddler around and trying to keep him from killing himself. I've done that a time or two. I know many of you have. Or maybe you feel, especially maybe some of you moms, feel like, I've changed a thousand diapers, cleaned up countless messes, and chattered at my two-year-old all day long who doesn't understand a word I'm saying, but how is any of this teaching them about God? I think we've got to remember that just our very presence with them communicates something to our kids. I know I've said this to a few other dads when we've struggled with this duty of, of, of especially the young age of toddlers. Well, there's not much verbal interaction. 
Because our presence with them communicates love. It communicates safety. It communicates joy in them, delight. And it communicates a solidarity. It says, I'm with you and I love you. Doesn't God do this with us constantly, every moment? He loves us by his presence. Even to the point of his indwelling presence in us by his spirit. He wants to be with us. He wants to tell us that he loves us and that he is with us. Jesus says to us, I'm with you. Even to the very end, God tells us that he's our constant shepherd, always vigilant, always caring. So remember that a lot of what we're seeing here, the principle, is not just talking, although I think that is very primary, but it's also presence. It's being with them. It's living among them. Because as we've already said, we're going to pass on who we are. And they're watching and observing, even at those young ages. The fourth thing that I want to talk about, the final thing, is our course of action. I just want to leave you with some tools or some applications to get you thinking, some ideas of how to implement what we've considered together today. These will be in no way exhaustive. And as I said before, there's no program here. This is a lifestyle. So these are just some ideas. Certainly don't have to take all of them. Um, I want to say also that we have a list of resources for um, parenting and, and other tools that you can use, catechisms and things like that that I'm going to talk about here in a moment. And if you'd like one of those, I didn't get to bring any with me this morning, but we're more than happy to send this to you either electronically or make copies and bring them in. Just a list of things that we've found very helpful as it comes to shepherding the hearts of our kids. So there's a lot of room for flexibility in our approach. Our goal, again, is to shepherd our kids' hearts toward knowing and loving God with all that they are. But just to get you thinking, here are a few ideas. The first one is family worship at home. And I want to say right away, first off, this is very hard. And I know it can, it can be a difficult thing to begin at times, but I find this difficult with young kids. But I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because Satan knows just how much our families would flourish if we did this regularly. I know it can be awkward and challenging, especially with the younger ones, but it's really simple, isn't it? It's really simple. It's not easy to do, but it's not complex. And I say that as one who's fallen off the wagon many times. But here's my tip. It's three things, and I get this from a book um, written by a guy named Donald Whitney, but it's three things. Read the Bible together, pray, sing a song. And it only needs to be five or ten minutes. At dinner or bedtime, whatever you prefer. Maybe, some, maybe you do one thing at dinner and another thing at bedtime. But the principle is this. Open the word with your kids. Talk to God with them. Worship God with them. It's okay if it feels weird. This is what it looks like to live together as fellow Christians with them. They're members of the family too. Remember, we're passing on who we are. The second thing are catechisms. You're probably, many of you are familiar with this, and I know many of you use them. But if you don't, they are just question and answer format, and they're a simple way to teach solid and deep doctrine to our kids in helpful ways. It's a great outline for teaching your kids the Bible. We often do this during breakfast on Saturday morning, as I said before. The questions are designed to give them a Godward orientation, to help them think about God's glory and who they are before God. Here's my tip. Don't make it legalistic. Don't get frustrated and quit, but do encourage and try to make it fun. 
If you fall off the wagon and you have to come back to it months and months later, that's okay. But be gentle and flexible, but stay consistent. It's a great way to give them solid and deep truth rather than staying in the shallow end. Also, I would say still go for the heart. Why does God care about this doctrine? Why, how is this helpful and why is it important for walking with Jesus? Make it practical and applicational. Go after their hearts. The third thing, use biblical words in the home. Where you can. I would encourage you to do this. It's just a helpful tip to give a framework for biblical thinking. You know, we use these words in the Bible a lot of times and as we read, and our kids are like, what, what does that word even mean? You know, they don't even know. They don't have a framework for it. Their kids, you know, the other third graders at school aren't talking like that, right? They're not talking about sin and grace. So use words like sin and grace. Talk about, in our home, we talk about repenting instead of just saying, I'm sorry. Lee has often said that in their home, they talk about giving forgiveness and that it's a transactional thing rather than just saying, it's okay. These are biblical ideas that show who God is and how we are to act toward one another. Even words to the point like being kind rather than being nice because kindness, you know, as a fruit of the Spirit, rather than just saying be nice. You're not going to do it all the time, but it's just one thing to keep in mind as a helpful tip. I think this is helpful not to disconnect God and his word from the very real daily struggles that our kids face with sin. It connects God to what they're dealing with. The fourth thing is be authentic. Lee talks about this all the time. Admit your failures. He, he talks about repenting to our kids and how important that is. At least we've talked about it a lot in Shepherd Group, I know. And I agree with him. I think we need to tell our kids how God has helped us. I would say even be willing, the next time you get irritable or snap at your kids, be willing right then and there in front of them to pray a prayer of repentance. Fifthly, know your children. Get to know their dispositions and their individual personality. Be aware of their typical struggles and their unique gifts. Learn what tends to help them or hinder them. God has given you to them as a good gift to know them and to love them. And fathers, I think we in particular need to take the lead here. We need to make it our mission to know the hearts of everyone in our homes. Sixthly, talk with other experienced parents. We've got a lot of parents around now who have raised children to adulthood to know the Lord and they've got a lot of wisdom and experience to share. Or it could be even someone who has a, a child who's two years older than your child. And it's just helpful to hear how they have dealt with some of the issues. It's a community effort. Involve others in the process. Ask questions from the people you trust. What, what's worked for you? What hasn't? Seek them out and get their wisdom. You still need to figure out what's best for your family and your kids. Again, you need to know your children. And it's going to be different, isn't it? As I said at the beginning of this fifth point or fourth point, there's a lot of room for flexibility here. This isn't a hard and fast thing. There's no one size fits all. But I would say make use of the resources around you. That's what the community is for. And as we said back in Deuteronomy as we were looking at this passage, that's what Moses is doing here. He's calling the entire community to teach the children. That means all of us who are part of the church are to care for the, the other children, even those that aren't ours biologically or through adoption. We are still to help one another along in this process. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, I challenge you to pray. Pray for your kids. Pray for us parents. Parents, pray for one another. We need it, don't we? I know I do. 
And please pray for our kids, church teachers. I know we've mentioned that time and again, but tell them you appreciate them. Send them a note and let them know you're praying for them. I guarantee it will mean a lot to them. Well, what a joy and a blessing. What a responsibility and a challenge. Remember that God is a God of grace. We can't save our kids. We depend on Jesus completely, don't we? And so must they. They must depend on him. But let's seek to be messengers, to tell them how wonderful a Savior he is and what a joy is found in knowing him and loving him with all that we are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you have done, all the ways that you have kept your promises to us. We thank you for grace that has shone into the darkness of our hearts and rescued us even while we were yet sinners and rebels. You've made us your own. It's who we are. And Lord, we want to point our children to you. We know that you love them even more than we do that you deeply care for their hearts and you want to know them. And so I pray that you would give us the strength and the grace to continue to seek to teach them. I'm so thankful for the moms and dads and grandparents and Sunday school teachers and friends here in this body at North Point. I know that they faithfully love and teach the kids among them and in their sphere of influence. And I pray that you would continue to give us the strength by your spirit to press on in this and to see many of them as they become leaders in the next generation to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, to be those who would be a blessed generation who love Jesus with all of their heart and soul and might. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.